0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here for another Thursday afternoon time when we can get together and I can talk to you about uh, some questions, some Bible issues, things going on. And I look forward to these Thursday afternoons. Now, as was the case last week, this particular Thursday afternoon broadcast is pre-recorded. Right now as this airs, I'm actually on my way to a Bible Institute where I'm going to teach some Bible students. Really looking forward to my time there at CBI. But that means that I won't be able to be at home at noon on Thursday when I normally do this. So I'm very happy, though, on these Thursdays when I can't be there live To do something pre-recorded especially because i get a fair amount of questions that get sent to me from the youtube channel sometimes over social media sometimes through email and sometimes it takes me a long time to get to those particular uh, questions and i look forward to an opportunity like this to get caught up on some of those questions so the first question i have today that's come in comes from a man named charles and charles is from kenya and he wrote to thank me for my series on church history uh, on the Enduring Word website. Uh, it's also up on the uh, of course on this YouTube channel. I have a 20 part series of lectures through church history. And Charles basically says this. He's thanking me for the series. And then he says that he thanks me for dealing with the topic of slavery and colonization or colonialization. And he wants to know what my perspective is about the origin of slavery and the origin of colonization, Uh, in particular, the transatlantic slave trade and the colonization of the Americas and Africa. Well, I think that that is a fascinating, fascinating subject, Charles, Uh, especially you point out that you're asking this as being a Kenyan Christian. And that this kind of has some impact on you, uh, just from the culture and the environment that you're around. I'm very grateful, Charles, to be able to give you something of an answer to this question. You know, you ask about the origin of slavery and colonialism. Well, let me first give the idea of slavery. I'll tell you the origin of that, and I'm really not trying to be flippant when I say this, Charles. The, The origin of slavery is the origin of sin. I mean, there's a sense in which slavery just was the natural consequence of what happened in the Garden of Eden and the fallenness of human beings. It's fascinating to find that in virtually all ancient cultures that I know of, and again, I'm not an anthropological expert, but even if it's not true in all cases, it's absolutely true that it was unbelievably widespread through ancient cultures, this phenomenon of slavery. Mankind has always sought to enslave other people. And I don't need to remind you, Charles, that this is going on still today. Just today, I read an article in the New York Times, of all places, about a trial in Germany where a woman was on trial for Germany for not only buying, possessing, and then actually killing a Yazidi slave that was seized by ISIS forces. I don't know if it was in Iraq or in Syria, probably in Syria, but this woman and her husband uh, actually bought this five-year-old woman and a five-year-old girl and her mother uh, Yazidi women as slaves. They brutalized them in every way imaginable. Uh, They neglected them and ultimately they murdered them. And this woman is on trial for this in Germany. And it's some, some interesting circumstances behind the trial, but let me just say this. The whole idea here is that from ancient times to modern times, slavery has been a fact. You, you'll find some people in the Western world who somehow think that Christianity is responsible for slavery. And again, I could go into the reasons why they think that. You know, they, they're, they're mostly keying on the passages that slave takers— slave traders, slave owners used from the Bible to justify their evil practices. But, but again, the idea that Christianity, or Judaism for that matter, invented slavery is just crazy. It has existed universally for as long as there has been recorded history. Slavery is endemic, unfortunately, to the human condition, and it's a sign of God's work in the world that slavery um, is not as widely accepted as it once was. It still exists in the world today, but it's not as widely approved of or accepted. Now, you ask about the origin of colonization or colonial um, aspects. Charles, I think this is a very interesting question. What you're talking about is especially the colonialization of the Americas, meaning uh, European encounters with Native Americans in North America, And then of course, uh, in the Southern part of North America in Mexico, and then we're talking about in South America as well. And what we have here is we have something that I think is interestingly um, characteristic historically of what happens when there's an encounter between two cultures and there is a wide difference in those two cultures of technology. Because when two cultures meet, and there is a wide difference in technology. Often, I won't say always, but oftentimes that difference in technology is exploited and it's used to dominate uh, the less technologically advanced culture. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but th- there's even this phenomenon in the scriptures. You have a passage, I, I want to say it's in First Samuel chapter 13, where it describes the... Uh, the technological advantage that the Philistines had over the Israelites. And so the Israelites uh, didn't have swords or spears, or at least not enough of them to properly equip the Israeli army. It's interesting. It says that Jonathan and King Saul, uh, the father of Jonathan, that they both had swords and spears. But the average uh, Israelite infantryman soldier in the Israelite army did not have a, a sword or a spear. And it was because of this technological advance that the Philistines had over the Israelites. Well, what you had in the colonization of North America, Central America, South America, and then again, even into the African continent, and then even many places in Asia as well, is you had this phenomenon of a culture coming into contact with a greatly more advanced technological culture, much more than we would find the contrast in 1 Samuel chapter 15 with that aspect. So regarding colonization, I think you would just have to say that there is a mixed bag about it. I mean, slavery in this sense is evil. It's a monstrous evil, especially, and you pointed out, Charles, in your question, the transatlantic slave trade. That that was an evil that many people shared in Uh, the Africans who captured other Africans for slavery, the slave traders in Africa themselves, the transport of the slaves across the sea, the, the selling of the slaves in the new world, the abuse of slaves in the new world. All of it collectively was a monstrous evil. And might I say, Charles, as I'm pointing out something I'm sure you already know, I'm really doing this more for the sake of our listeners. This went against the Bible. The Bible says very specifically in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Again, that's Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. It's interesting, a similar command is given in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7, but it's regarding specifically Israelites. The command in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 is broader in its nature. So therefore, this was simply an unbiblical evil, the transatlantic slave trade. The way that those slaves were captured in Africa, the way that they were sold to the slave uh, transports, the way that they were sold in slave markets in the New World, uh, all of it collectively, a monstrous evil that we can thank the Christian influence in both the United Kingdom, Great Britain, through men like William Wilberforce, and in the United States, through the broad abolitionist movement, both of which were prompted absolutely by Christian principles. You see, Christianity is not the answer to the question, why is there slavery? Christianity is the answer to the question, why was slavery abolished, at least in the United Kingdom and in uh, the United States, And in many cultures around the world, even though it's sad to say that in some ways, slavery is making a comeback. So slavery, it's kind of more easy to deal with. Colonization, the whole phenomenon of colonization, I have to say, Charles, I'm going to be honest with you. I think it was a mixed bag. There was some good to it, obviously, but there was also some bad. Again, I have already mentioned the great danger when two cultures come together and one of those cultures has a great technological advantage over the other culture. We already described that and we reference back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. But what I want to get here to is that I think an honest observer would have to say that there were some benefits to colonization Uh, benefits in technology, benefits in health benefits of that. But any observer would also have to honestly say there was a lot of bad. There was a lot of evil that happened with colonization. There was a lot of oppression. There was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of uh, just economic deprivation. Uh, On and on. There was obviously a great deal of evil uh, in the whole colonialization, especially of Africa, but in a different sense as well of the Americas. Now, what do we do with this? Well, I think if we can discern any good that has come from uh, the meeting of these two cultures, European and American culture, together with, although really it's colonization was a, a European thing fundamentally, but of course American had its aspects of it. But we can be thankful for the good of that, but we can also recognize and be honest about the sinfulness of it. And honestly, we can't repent of the sins of the past of our distant ancestors, but we can be sorry over that sin. And it can give us a sympathetic heart to those who in some way may still be affected by those sins. And it can give us hearts full of love and sympathy. And most of all, be thankful for the good. Uh, Repent if there's any present day sin of it sorrow over the sins of our ancestors and show sympathy to any who might still be affected in some way. But most of all, believe that God can really do some great, great things in the present. That's what I would really say is the important thing. The the wonderful truth about the scriptures is our lives, our destiny is not fundamentally in the hands of other people. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Now, I'm not trying to minimize anybody who has suffered from somebody else because there's terrible abuse, there's terrible uh, harm that is inflicted upon other people in the world. But what we have to say is the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is this wonderful, wonderful message that we have God first and foremost to trust in, to look to, and that God can make a path over Um, the wicked people in this world, in this life, or, or perhaps even in the life to come. And this is something that's distressing to many people. And I understand why it's distressing. It's simply this. There are some wrongs in this world that will not be set right until the world to come. Now, I don't say that to say that we shouldn't be concerned about justice in our present world, that we shouldn't fight for what's right, that that the abuser should not be punished, that the victim should not be, uh, you know, sympathized with and cherished. But look, the the absolute truth of it is, is that there are some things that will not be set right on this side of eternity. That's one of the reasons, one of many reasons, why I believe there is, there is a life beyond this one. I mean, I believe it because the Bible says it but I also believe it out of reasons of logic and, and, and just a rational look at the world, teaching us that, simply speaking, that there has to be a world beyond where things are set right. Charles, I believe in that world. I trust that you believe in that world. I hope all our viewers and listeners believe in that world. And while we do rightfully work for what is just and fair and right in this world, we don't wanna neglect that, we do recognize the fact that there will be something better and a righting of every wrong, a crossing of every T in the world to come. So thanks, Charles, for your question. Uh, Sorry it took me so long to get to it, but I'm glad uh, I could answer it when I could. Now, the next set of questions comes from another African. This is from Dana from South Africa. And she writes, and Dana, thank you for your very, very kind email. Dana's recounting how we met previously at a conference in South Africa and how it was just such a pleasure to meet and how they've benefited from some of the online resources that we have. Of course, Dana, you can just imagine. I, I just love hearing that. I love hearing about anybody uh, who benefits from the online materials that we have absolutely free, not only on this YouTube channel, but of course we have uh, thousands and thousands of pages of Bible commentary and Bible resources available at EnduringWord.com. And listen, I know as well as anybody that there's no one Bible commentary that works for every Christian, for every pastor, teacher, just Bible reader. I get that as much as anybody does. I'm delighted that there's some people who find these Bible resources that uh, I've written uh, absolutely free on EnduringWord.com. There's some people who find them helpful. And Dana, to whatever extent you and your family have found them, help, found them helpful, I'm very pleased to hear. Okay, here's Dana's questions. First of all, she asks, how much does the Old Testament relate to Christians under the New Covenant? Again, let me repeat that question. How much does the Old Testament relate to Christians under the New Covenant? And she kind of expands on her question. She says this, when God is speaking to Israel, the tendency is to see God speaking to Christians Christians, unless it's a fulfillment of the law. Is that the right way to see it? This has been quite confusing for both me and my husband. Well, Dana, I don't blame you for being a little bit confused about this, because it is true that um, this is something that is easily misunderstood, and I think it's common to see Christians misunderstand it today. Look, here's what we need to understand a few things. Number one, we are not under the Old Testament law in its ceremonies, and in its rituals. Not one bit. All those ceremonies, all those rituals, and might I say the moral law of the Old Testament is also fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that our Messiah Jesus has fulfilled it all. Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it in its moral obligations. He fulfilled it in its ceremonial requirements. He fulfilled it in its rituals. Jesus fulfilled the law. And we thank God for it. When on the cross, Jesus said, paid in full. He didn't just mean that the debt of sin was paid in full, although if there was any first meaning in his mind, that was it. But it was all fulfilled. It was all paid in full. Every obligation we had under the law was paid. Now, that means that the ritual law, the ceremonial law, that is just done away with us in Jesus Christ. We don't have to. Now, let me give you an example of that. And this is an example that that really troubles a lot of believers. The Sabbath day. They they say, well, look, it's so plain in the Old Testament. God established it as this, this everlasting thing. Christians should observe Sabbath day, whereas the New Testament makes it very clear that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We should regard one day as another. And that every day is our day of Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ. But I would say this, if you are a believer and you want to keep the Sabbath, you have perfect liberty in Jesus Christ. to do so. If you are a believer and you want to observe some of the feasts of Israel, you have perfect liberty in Jesus Christ to do so. But please, and listen to me, just don't think that it makes you any more right with God. That's where people get tripped up. We have the freedom to observe the sabbath or to not observe it it's fulfilled in jesus we have the freedom to observe uh, a jewish uh an old testament feast or to not observe it we have the freedom in jesus christ just don't think that the keeping of it or the not keeping of it makes you any more righteous no it's what jesus has done on the cross that is the basis of our righteousness okay so with that out of the way What about the moral law? Well, since the moral law of the Old Testament is also presented to us in the New Testament, we understand that we still have a call to moral obedience under the New Covenant. God did not arrange the New Covenant and bring believers into a new relationship with Him under the New Covenant so that we would do away with the law. So, that the law, morally speaking, would be written on our hearts and not only on the page. So, the moral law don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, um, love one another, forgive one another these moral aspects of the law are still true and they are still binding upon Christians. Christians must obey. But, but we don't obey in order to gain our salvation. We gain because we ha- we obey because we have been put into proper relationship with Jesus Christ by the person and work of Jesus himself. So I would just say we are living under a fulfilled law, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The ritual law, the ceremonial law, keep it if you want to. Don't think it makes you any more right with God. The moral law, as it's also repeated for us in the New Testament, This is something that we need to keep and obey and observe. So I hope that's helpful for you. Let's go on because Dana had a few more questions. She says, in Malachi, this is question number two, in Malachi chapter three, verse 10, it explains that in giving, you will receive more. Isn't that in line with prosperity teaching? Uh, And so that's a great question there, Dana, because it does plainly say so. In Malachi chapter three, verse 10, God makes the argument that he wanted to bless Israel with, if I could say he wanted to bless obedient Israel with material blessing, but they did not receive that material blessing because they would not give unto the Lord. They would not bring the tithes that they should bring unto God. And there's a very clear promise in the old Testament. And there's places in the new Testament as well that assure us that there is a blessing for those who give. However, let me explain to you how that is not the same at all as the prosperity teaching. The prosperity teaching, basically, which says, hey, give unto me and give unto my ministry uh, so that you'll get a hundredfold. And if you invest $10 in my ministry, God promises to give you, I don't know what a hundredfold of 10 is, a thousand or whatever it is. God promises to give you a hundredfold of whatever money you'll give to me. So give to me and to my ministry so that you can become richer. It's a gro- appeal to greed and materialism. It should never be like that. However, I don't have the slightest hesitation saying that I believe that if people give to good Christian works, I could say, including the one I'm involved with, Enduring Word, that if people give to good Christian works, that God will bless them. Now, here's the difference, Dana. The blessing isn't necessarily material. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Actually, it starts at verse 29. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice, jesus linked it to the age to come and eternal life there is an aspect of reward that awaits for us in heaven so i believe that god abundantly rewards those who give often the abundant reward is um, material but not necessarily but whether it is material or not in this age certainly it is spiritual in the age to come in eternal life. The Bible speaks of the concept of storing up treasure in heaven. and then that a thrilling idea? That we can actually store up heaven and treasure for ourselves. We can store up heaven. Now we can store up treasure for ourselves. I don't know if I, how many times I misspoke that. We can store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. And that is a fantastic thing for us to do. That is the reward God has So, I mean, I'll just tell you, those people who give unto the ministry that we have, enduring word, we pray that God would bless them. And if God wants to do that materially, well, praise the Lord. But if God wants to do that in the age to come, I believe he'll do that as well. And sometimes that will be the blessing that they get. Okay, let's move on to Dana's third question. Dana, I don't mind that you ask a lot of questions. I'm just glad that I have this Thursday to answer them. Here's question number three from Dana. How active is God in our lives? Is he active in some cases and passive in other instances? Well, Dana, that's a great question. Let me read it again just so that our viewers and our listeners get it. How active is God in our lives? Is he active in some cases and passive in other instances? Well, I would say yes to your statement about God being active in some cases and passive in other instances. Yes, by our perception. According to our perception, it seems that God is active in some cases and passive in others. But we understand that behind the scenes, we serve, we honor, we have a sovereign God who rules and reigns in the universe. And because he does, we can trust that God will do right, that God will guide things to its appointed end, that even though there may be trouble and difficulty in the lives of believers, God has promised to work all things together for good, for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. That's our assurance, Dana. So God is active in, I would say, the entirety of the life of a believer, but that's not how we perceive it. I don't think that God wants us to perceive it that way. I don't think God wants us to perceive and say, Lord, do you want me to pick up this pen or not? Should I hold on to this pen? Should I put the pen down? You know, it's not like that. It's not like that. That's a weird, that's a bizarre way to live. God is active in everything, but not according to our perception. And so those places where it appears and where we perceive God to be moving in a more evident way, well, we thank him for those things and we just move on in that work. Okay, let me go on to your next question there, Dana. You ask, what age or what signs of maturity to you would show an age of accountability? Well, that is a fascinating topic, Dana. First of all, the whole issue of an age of accountability. I know that there are some brothers, sisters uh, in our Christian world that scoff at the idea of an age of accountability. I want you to know and perhaps I'll do uh, more video on this later, but I want you to know that the idea of an age of an accountability is more firm in my mind now than it was before. I think that the Scriptures speak to it more than I'd ever thought. Uh, I read something by the important missionary and missiologist, Don Richardson, where he was writing about the age of accountability, and and he just brought out many passages of Scripture that I had not considered more that speak to the issue of the existence of some kind of age of accountability. Now, is there a numerical age of accountability? No, no. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Uh, Jewish culture, coming forth from biblical culture, does. You know, at approximately age 13, uh, the Boy becomes a man. The girl becomes a woman. There's the bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah. We understand that. But but biblically speaking, there's not a numerical age given for accountability, but the concept of an age of accountability is biblical, I believe, and it does appear. So what might parents look for to be evidence of succumbing of age or signs of maturity that would demonstrate some kind of age of accountability? Well, I'll give you two things kind of off the top of my head, Dana. Number one, I would say if there is an awareness of sin. I think an awareness of sin is evidence of an age of accountability. Again, I think it's possible that a child has an awareness of sin without it. I don't think it's some absolutely required or guarantee of it, but it is a, um, a definite, definite, I think, um, possibility that an awareness of sin is evidence of an age of accountability. Another aspect of it too is an evident knowing love for Jesus. I'm not just talking about a sentimental love for Jesus, but a knowing love for Jesus. You know, who preached some amazing sermons on the ability of children to have a real relationship with the Lord was Charles Spurgeon. I think there's one sermon he titled, Come Ye Children, or Come Unto Me, whatever. There's a couple sermons that he preached on this whole subject of the way that children can have a real relationship with the Lord. And I would say, if we see that, that is another indication of an age of accountability. So those are two things that I would look for, Dana, uh, an awareness of sin and a real relationship with and love for Jesus. Uh, I'm not even saying that necessarily there has to be both in strong measure, but there should be at least some measure of both before I would take a look and really think seriously about an age of accountability. Okay, going on, uh, question number five from Dana. She asks about teenage years or even further along at times. These are very difficult years in any person's life with uh, huge changes going on, obviously physically and um, socially and all the rest of it as well. Well, her question is this, did Jesus obviously not battle with this being the reason why it's not mentioned in his own life. Well, it's interesting that you say that, Dana, that it's not mentioned that Jesus battled with this. I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps it is mentioned. Does it not say that Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, it says of Jesus, who is tempted in all points just like us, and whatever unique challenges and difficulties that a young person faces in adolescence and in puberty and in all the rest of it, Jesus faced those same challenges and changes. He was in all points. Now, I, I don't think it means that Jesus uh, had every single specific temptation that every person in humanity says. I don't think Jesus ever had to deal with the temptation of social media. But the same things in me that might guide me to be more obsessed with social media than I am, the same idolatry that might put social media in too high of a place in my life, Jesus faced those same things, even though he didn't face the specific temptation of an overuse of social media, the same essential temptation he did face. I would just say Jesus faced these same things that young people went through, and Jesus trusted in his God and Father for the strength and the ability to honor God in the midst of such seasons of challenge and temptation. And then here's a sixth question. I think there's just a couple more here. Uh, Yeah, just two more questions from Dana. Sixth question is, do you think that all children will be taken up at the time of the rapture or not? Is there scriptural backing? All right, Dana, I'm going to give you uh, the theologian's answer to this, or at least to whatever extent I am a theologian, which I don't think of myself much as, but I'm just kind of stalling a little bit, to be honest here. Let me give you an answer to this. Do I think that all children will be taken up at the time of the rapture or not? I don't know. Now, I can say, because of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he wrote this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling us that there is some significant sense in which the children of believers are sanctified and made holy by the fact that they have even one believing parent. Okay, so we understand that. So I think we can say with some reasonable confidence that uh, the children of believers will be taken up in the rapture. Is it rock solid, you know, out of the mouth of two or more witnesses? No, it's not as solid as we would like, but but I, I, I think it's pretty substantial there. The passage in 1 Corinthians 7 regarding children of believers. Regarding children, otherwise, just not specifically told. And so I can't be sure. There's part of me that wants to say, especially considering what I wrote before about an age of, or what I spoke before about an age of accountability, there's something in me to say that everybody under or outside the age of accountability, yes, yes, they will be taken, but the Bible doesn't specifically tell us so. Listen, when judgment comes to nations to peoples, to communities. Some who are apparently innocent, and I say apparently because there's a sense in which nobody's innocent, we get that. Some who are apparently innocent sometimes caught up in that. This is just the truth. Children perished at Sodom and Gomorrah. Jewish children perished when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and Judea. I mean, I could go on and on, but you get the point. I don't know. It would be awesome if God did rapture all the children, everybody who is under or outside of an age of accountability, but we don't know that. All we can say with confidence is what it says about the children of believers. And then finally, Dana, your question is, when are you going to upload an Ezekiel audio video study? I wish I could answer that question for you, because actually it's not very uh, prominent in my queue of upcoming studies. Uh, There's part of me that says what I really need to do is I need to finish the, um, I need to do it for the book of Genesis. I don't have audio video teaching on the book. I've taught through it many times, but I don't have good audio or video teaching on it. A part of me says, no, what I really need to do is I need to do this for Psalms because I love the Psalms and it's important important thing. So I don't know. I don't know, Dana, when I'm going to get to it. But I pray that God will just give me the ability to do so. and Trust that he will with you and others praying. Well, look, that, that's all we really have time for today. I'm going to cut it off here. Uh, the very next time we can do one of these YouTube things live, we're going to do it live. Trust me on that. Uh, but until we can do them live, I'm grateful for the opportunity to pre-record these to post them, and to have some kind of question and answer time with you on a Thursday afternoon. At least that's when this video is going to get posted, uh, to have some kind of question and answer time, even if it can't be on the live chat. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing to the YouTube channel telling other people about it. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for giving it the likes or the thumbs up or whatever it is. Thank you for clicking the bell for notifications. And most of all, Thanks to the people who support the ongoing work of Enduring Word, who are very grateful for it. We don't take it for granted. We pray for those who do, and uh, we pray for everybody, uh, in a very broad sense, of course, who benefits and who uses the online material. God bless you. Looking forward to joining you again. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.